So church, when we began our study of Mark's gospel back on Sunday morning, December 29th of 2019, we began with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Apostle John seems to sum up well the purpose behind all the gospels when he says this in John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The words that were written in this book, the things which were witnessed and faithfully passed on to us by the apostles, they're recorded here that we may see we may come to life-giving faith in the reality that Jesus is the Christ. And yet in those moments, as these men walked with Jesus up to this morning's text for two and a half years, those first disciples, they struggled greatly to recognize exactly what it is that they were seeing and they were hearing. There was so much history. There was so much noise. You see, they knew they wanted to be with Jesus. They knew that he alone had the words of eternal life. But there was generation after generation of misunderstanding, of expectation, of empty, heartless religion, and it all just got in the way. So they struggled to recognize fully who this Jesus was until they didn't. I'd invite you to stand to your feet, please. So we read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. That's Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the, villages, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. All God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. It began like this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So you'll remember from last week's text that Jesus and the disciples, they were up in the town of Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, if we understand correctly where this is, just on the eastern side of the Jordan River where it enters into the lake. As we've talked at great length about, Jesus has been pulling further and more frequently away from the region of Galilee. His focused ministry to the people there, it had come to an end. These Jewish towns, they had seen more than enough to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He had shown them so many works. They had heard so much of his teaching, but they were hardened in their hearts. So they would not believe. So while Jesus will pass back through the region of Galilee, and while he'll even stop back in his home base of Capernaum, ultimately he is done teaching and preaching publicly there. By the time he arrives back in Capernaum, he has got his face firmly fixed on Jerusalem. His eyes are looking towards the cross. So at this moment we see that they head even further north. They head to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, this is not the same Caesarea that you see on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea 
This is a place way up north, about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about as far as you can travel north while remaining within the traditional boundaries of the nation of Israel. So Caesarea Philippi, it's just to the east of the city of Dan. And so most of you that have spent any time in the Old Testament, you're familiar with the words there where they talk about the latitudinal span of Israel's boundaries, how they talk about being from Dan to Beersheba. So we're just to the east of that place is where this Caesarea Philippi is, right up near modern-day Lebanon and Syria. So the, uh, the city, it was originally called Peneus. It was named Peneus after the Greek god Pan. You guys have probably seen versions of Pan if you've watched any kind of mytho uh, mythology or any kind of science fiction work because Pan, as a god, they believed him to be a half-goat, half-man, like a, like a fawn, and he was often playing a flute. They believe that this pan was born up in the mountain, Mount Hermon. You see, Caesarea Philippi sits right at the base of Mount Hermon. So they believe that this pan, this goat god that played a flute, that he was born up in one of the caves on this mountain, that he watched over the people there, that he was the god over nature. He was the god over wilderness and shepherds and desolate places. So Peneus, it was eventually handed over to Herod the Great. And when Herod took control of the city, it was his desire then that he would honor the ruler of Rome. And so he then created a, a, a monument. He created a temple there made out of white marble to Caesar. When Herod the Great died and his son, Philip the Tetrarch, took over, he also wanted to honor the ruler of Rome. And so he renamed the place Caesarea after Caesar. But, of course, he wanted to affix his name somehow to the powerful one, so he adds his name in the back. That's how we get Caesarea Philippi. And so by today's day, when, when you go to this place today, you'll find that it's called Banyas. Banyas is the Arabic translation of Peneus. So when you go there, you'll find the Banyas River flows out of Caesarea Philippi. It's one of the main tributaries to the Jordan River. And the way it works is really cool. Up at the top of a mountain, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. What do you think happens all the way up at the top of a mountain? You get snow. What happens when that snow melts? It turns into freezing cold water. What happens to that water? It runs down the mountain. It seeps through the cracks and through the pores and into the Banyas River. It is beautiful absolutely beautiful when we were there last fall you would sit in the shade by this kind of slow moving stream that would move down there one of my very favorite meals that we had there was a lunch we were in a, in a little little restaurant just south of Banyas you remember this ladies and we had shawarma there if you hadn't had shawarma go find out about it it's awesome it's carved meat put into a pita we would sit there right where the river seems to widen it is no wonder that Jesus chose to take his disciples there it's a way of getting it is a It is a beautiful, just a serene place. So Jesus took his men away. They were going to go away for a time of teaching. They were going to go away for a time of respite before they returned and headed back south towards Jerusalem. And on the way, he asked his disciples. You ever notice that much of Mark's gospel happens on the way? People didn't travel back then the way we travel today. They didn't jump into a big comfy SUV. Everybody made sure that their phone or their iPad was charged up. Put your earbuds in and you tune out, zone out on Netflix or some audio book. Traveling was slow. It was steady. It was tedious. And the only entertainment you had was the people that you happened to travel along the way with. So Jesus was not going to waste this opportunity for exploration, for discovery, for questioning, for teaching. So Jesus asked them a question. Now this is not the normal pattern for rabbis. Normally, it was the disciples that asked the question of their rabbis. Normally, it was the disciples which chose their rabbis. But we don't see that with Jesus. You remember that he chose those that would follow him. He called them to follow him. And now we see here that he's the one asking the question. 
So Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Boys, what's the word on the street? They've seen what they're going to see. They've heard what, they've gonna heard what they're going to hear. What then is their verdict? Who do people say that I am? At face value, that's a very strange question. We don't ask questions like that. I might ask, what do people think of me? What do people make of this thing that I've done? But the who question, who do people say that I am? I believe that Jesus asked this question in this way because you cannot rightly understand the things that Jesus did unless you understand who he is. Only he was uniquely qualified to do all that needed to be done to destroy the works of the devil, to free souls from eternal hell. They have to understand who Jesus is. And that was the desire in the asking of this question. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Does this listing sound familiar? If you remember all the way back in Mark 6, when Herod Antipas, he was all worked up because he had heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. And we read there in Mark 6, 14 through 15, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Herod, of course, concluded that he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. But I would ask you to take note of the fact that the crowd did not dismiss Jesus as a nice man or a powerful teacher. They knew at very least that he was a messenger from God. It was clear to them based on what they had seen. Some of them determined that God had raised John the Baptist, who Herod had beheaded. Some determined that God had raised John the Baptist from the grave. We covered that in great length in our treatment of Mark 6. Others believed that he was the prophet Elijah. You'll remember that in some of the very last words of the Old Testament, before the 400 years of silence, that God had promised through the prophet Malachi that Elijah would come before the great and powerful day of the Lord. Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So people have been waiting. They've been watching for Elijah, the one who did not taste death, to come, to return to them. But then others believe that he was just one of the other prophets, perhaps Jeremiah, as Matthew's parallel account says. But again, the crowd... They knew that this was not some ordinary man. They knew that the works he had done, they must point to something more. It was indisputable that he had come from God. This is some seriously high praise. They compared Jesus to the greatest men they had ever known. And they were way short. Just like the world today. There are many people that are all too happy to recognize Jesus as a great man. Perhaps the greatest man that's ever lived. But they never reckon with the claims that both he and the entirety of Scripture makes about him. They stop way, way short. Jesus doesn't even bother clarifying to them. He just moves on to the next question, verse 29. So he asks them, who do you say that I am? This is the question that the disciples have been wrestling with since all the way back in Mark 4. Who is this man? They had seen pieces, glimpses, almost seeming to get there at times. But then it would always just, it would escape them. They couldn't get all the way there. And I have to imagine that they were kind of anxious at times that he might ask them this question. I mean, they were following along. They knew that they wanted to be with him. And then here comes the question. Who do you say that I am? A question that every single one of us must answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? You? At least most of you? You've heard his teaching. 
you have seen evidence of his works as passed on to us through the apostles. So who do you say that Jesus is? What other people say really has no bearing here. What the crowds believe about who Jesus is has no bearing here. Oh, it matters for them. It will carry great consequence in their eternity. But as for you, as for your ultimate destination, the opinions of the crowd mean nothing. Because theology, and in this case Christology, it is not determined by vote. It is not settled by consensus. And children, I need you to listen to me very plainly. When it comes to this question, the opinions and answers of your parents are not what matters. The belief of your parents will not secure heaven for you. Praise God that their rejection of Jesus Christ will not sentence you to hell. Their beliefs about who Jesus is, certainly it's going to shape the things that they teach you. And we know that God can and will use the faithful teaching of Christian parents to call some of their children to eternal life. We know that there's others of you, particularly some of you grown children, that you have spent much of your life trusting in the Holy Spirit to clear your minds and your hearts from some really crummy theology that your parents poured into you. But at the end of this all, while we must honor our parents, you must honor them, you must obey them, when it comes to the question of who do you believe Jesus is, we must understand that this may put us at odds with the people that we love most. Listen to Jesus' words, Matthew 10, 35 through 37. For I have come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Listen, the country where you are born and the family to whom you were given, those things matter. They are part of God's sovereign plan in your life. I've said this more times than I know how to repeat, that God has not only ordained the outcome of your life, he has ordained the means by which he will bring you there. He has placed you in places amongst people, and he will use all those things for the good of those that love him, to those that have been called according to his purpose. But in the end, what your parents say, what the crowd says, even what your pastor says, is not going to be what matters when Jesus asks you the question, who do you say that I am? You must determine this for yourself. Again, recognizing that this may well pit you against the people that you love most. Because if these men were going to confess Jesus as anything more than a great prophet, they were going to have to go contrary to the crowd. If they were going to make this proclamation, a pronouncement, it was going to be in direct opposition to public opinion. And friends, I wonder if this isn't a blessing at times. You see, it's easy when the world seems to be moving towards the church. It's easy to make empty, heartless proclamations of faith. Everyone shouts, hooray! There's no persecution, there's no dirty looks, there's no real cost to pay, at least not in the immediate sense. No one threatens your life. But when the entire world is going directly against that, when the entire world is pulling against that, when the entire world is calling Jesus a blasphemer or a lunatic or a liar, and yet still you yearn to confess his name, surely God uses that thing to increase your confidence, 
to assure you that this is something that doesn't just reside in the mind. This isn't just a game that you're playing. That this is something that takes root deep within you. This wasn't a time for the disciples to just parrot what they had heard Jesus say. You've experienced this. As you're out talking with people and somehow or another you ask them about Jesus and you can almost see the gears moving in their head. They're just, they're just trying to recall little bits and pieces. Just, just little, little fortune cookie slivers of, of Christian lingo that they've heard spiritual sounding people saying. And then when they miss the mark, when they give a wrong answer, we're so quick to just rush in with a bunch of information. Just an avalanche of facts about Jesus. Because we've memorized the pattern. We know the tract. So we just swarm them. Here's the outline. Take it and go. And maybe we can convince them to recite back to us the words that we've just given them. Maybe we can convince them to follow after us in some kind of prayer. Guys, I want you to know that I wrestle with this. Please hear me. I wrestle badly with this. I don't say this with any level of snark or smugness. I'm not mocking what so many of us grew up believing was the picture of evangelism. I struggle. To this day, I struggle all the time to rightly think about what is it we're supposed to do with this gospel with regards to the lost world around us. And listen, evangelism, it absolutely includes faithfully passing on that which has been entrusted to us. How will they believe if no one tells them? We've got an obligation then to tell them the truth about who Jesus is and then to correct them where they err. To show them their misunderstandings. Listen to Paul as he exhorts the church in Thessalonica. Brothers, stand firm and hold to the, tradi the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. We've got to get this to them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, we can turn evangelism into nothing more than the transfer of information, especially when it comes to our children. We can fall for this lie that if we can just get them to understand the ABCs, and if we can just get them to repeat after us, if we can just get them to recite this prayer, then we can go home with the assurance that they are saved. And beloved, I would argue that more often than not, that's all we're looking for. We want to just be able to sleep at night. Just promise us that our children are saved. And the way that we feel we can do that, let's simplify it. Just give them the ABCs, say after me. But this can't be it. Look, there's times in school when you send your children off and you tell them, look, I know that we don't believe what the teacher is teaching, but you need to get an A here. So you just memorize their facts, you just recite them back to them on the test, and everything's going to be okay. Beloved, that's not the case with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're sowing seeds and trusting the one that causes the growth. You sow the seeds and you wait. And you watch, Jesus had sowed the seeds, and now he's looking. He's not asking them for some kind of rehearsed statement. He's asking them to tell them what they truly believe about who he is. Deep down, who do you believe that I am? This is not the time to honor me with your lips while your hearts are far off. What does your heart say? Who does your heart say that I am? This was a test. Not a test of their capacity to retain and regurgitate information. This was a testing of their heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Hearts which truly believe will rightly confess. And Jesus, of course, knew these men's hearts. So Peter answers, you are the Christ. There it is. You are the Christ. As best I can tell, Mark has not used that word since the very first verse in his gospel. Christos, 
The root word there is cryo. It means to anoint. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Again, meaning to anoint. This is a title, not a name. I, like many of you, grew up believing that Jesus' last name was Christ. But that's not the case. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the carpenter, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And Peter, deep down in his heart, he realized, he knew, he trusted, this Jesus is the Christ, the anointed. Now at its most literal usage, its most physical understanding, to anoint is just to rub or pour oil over something. The word Messiah could be used in a very benign way. It does not always speak to the character of someone. It can mean anyone or anything that is set aside for use by God. We see this in Isaiah 45.1, where the prophet talks about King Cyrus that would be born some hundred years later. He says, thus says the Lord to his anointed. The root word there is Messiah to Cyrus. Isn't it speaking to the character of Cyrus, the salvation of Cyrus? It's that God was going to use Cyrus for a very specific purpose. But more often than not in Scripture, we see that it carries something much more significant, something much more spiritual, something sacred. It's an act of consecration, declaring someone or something as holy and set apart unto the Lord. And while there's not always oil involved, oftentimes there is, but along with that, more often than not, comes the sending of God's Spirit upon that person to equip and empower them for the work. We see Jesus talking about this as he's there in the synagogue in Nazareth. He says these words, Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So that oftentimes the oil upon a man's head signifies the Spirit coming upon them. And in the Old Testament, we will generally see this play out with regards to three offices. You've heard of these before. This is not going to come as new material to you. Firstly, we see it with regards to a prophet. You remember that when Elijah was speaking to God and God was showing him the one that would come, the one that would take his place after he was swept up into heaven, 1 Kings 19, 16. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mehalah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. Secondly is the priest. You remember that when God had Moses set aside Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to Israel, Exodus 28, 40 through 41. For Aaron's son, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make for them glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. We got the prophet, we got the priest, and lastly, we got the king. You remember that as the prophet Samuel was out looking for the king that would take the place of Saul, God led him to the house of Jesse. There was one boy left. He was out in the field. Who would possibly want him? And we read 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. As David comes, now he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So for so many of the first century Jewish people, this was the picture that they had of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. They were waiting for one that would come, powerful in the Holy Spirit, wise, strong, able to do wondrous works, perhaps completely free from sin, able to free his people from slavery, able to return the kingdom of God to its rightful place. And to some degree, the people were correct just as they were correct in understanding that Jesus was from God, and yet again, it fell so far short. This is why, in part, Jesus would squash any talk of this, 
That's why I was always doing things and telling people to keep this to yourself for now because the people couldn't fully understand what it meant for him to be the Christ. And they certainly couldn't understand what the Christ had come to do. You see, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ of God, yes, he was a prophet. He talks about that himself when he was there in the synagogue in, in Nazareth. We read about this with the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Both Peter and Stephen talk about the reality that this was the one that had been promised of through Moses. Acts 7, 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he was much more than just a prophet. He was the one about whom all this prophecy pointed. Listen again to the story of Jesus on the Emmaus Road. We read this a couple of weeks back as Jesus is traveling along after the resurrection and there's some disciples of his and they're down. They're downtrodden. They think that all is lost. So Jesus comes along and he asks them, why such great despair? So listen, as we read Matthew 24, I'm going to read 18 through 21, then skip down to 25. Then one of them named Cleopas. Well, one of you please name your son Cleopas? I desperately want to dedicate a Cleopas before I die. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Then we skip down to verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Jesus did not merely speak the word of God. He is the word of God, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word that was God. He wasn't just a prophet. He was the subject of all prophecy, all pointing forward to him. And yes, he was a priest, but he was not like any earthly priest. While the earthly priests were there, and they made intercession on behalf of the people. They offered up sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus had not come into this place by bodily descent or by bloodlines. He was a priest forever. And he was not like the high priest that it could only enter into God's presence one time per year. And then, with the blood of animals to atone for the sins of himself and the sins of the people. We read something very different in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This Jesus, he's not like these, eternal, I mean, these earthly priests. He doesn't have to go and offer sacrifices for the sins of himself. He is sinless. And he doesn't year after year, day after day, have to offer the blood of bulls and of goats and of lambs. He was a perfect sacrificial lamb, giving his life once and for all, sufficient. He's a priest. He's a prophet, but not like the others. And most certainly he's a king. But he's not an earthly king like King David. He would tell us that this kingdom, his kingdom is not of this world. He was the promised eternal king. Not a king that would be replaced by someone else. Not a king that would be thrown off of his throne thrown off of his throne, removed from his throne. He was a king that the scepter would never depart from him. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
He didn't just rule over a bunch of people that happened to live in some certain place. He freed those citizens. He called them to himself. He rescued them. Those that would be citizens would be those that the kingdom would reign in their heart. Again, a kingdom that would know no end to the ends of the earth. And he wasn't just battling earthly, earthly enemies. He wasn't just battling the nations of the earth, constantly leading his people as he destroyed these cosmic powers, spiritual forces. He wasn't just leading them to fidelity to their covenant with God. He fulfilled the covenant. Every last letter, he fulfilled it. And we long for that day when he returns, when even those that don't count themselves as kingdom citizens today, those that have turned their back and rejected the king, and yet when that final trumpet sounds and he returns, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So he, was a, he was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a king, but not like any that you've ever seen. Don't you see? He wasn't just merely a man in which all three of these offices happened to be fulfilled. He was the ultimate fulfillment. Everything that these things had been building towards, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, all the words, all the sacrifices, all the earthly kingdoms, they were pictures. They were shadows. They were signposts. They were all pointing towards him, and he's here, the Christ. Not one among many, not just the greatest among men. He was the one in whom all the needs are met. You need to hear God's word. You need to know him. It's through Christ. You need to be made right with God. It's through Christ. You need to enter the kingdom of God. It's through Christ. It's all found in him. And again, God didn't, didn't merely just raise up the best among men. This wasn't David. This wasn't Moses. This wasn't Elijah. This wasn't John the Baptist. He was God. We read in Matthew's parallel that Peter also says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. These people had no idea. This is what they missed in part. They were looking for the greatest man amongst them, never understanding that God himself would come. God himself would do these things. It would be God clothed in human flesh, fully God, fully man. They had been looking for an earthly deliverer. That's why they called him a blasphemer. That's why they demanded his death. The problem wasn't that they wanted too little. It's that they settled for too, that they wanted too much. It's that they settled for too little. They had no idea. They had no concept of how great, how marvelous God's fulfillment of all these promises would be. And beyond that, they had no concept, no idea of how God-centered his answers would be. That's the way we live. Who's the best man among us that can fix all our problems? God says, I've fixed them all. You can't do it. It is only in me. And I've come to you. Quit looking to kings. Quit looking to priests. Quit looking to prophets. They all find their fulfillment in my son. And you're settling for the lesser when the greater has come. That's what it means to confess that he is the Christ. So he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. This wasn't time to build another crowd. Again, crowds just got in the way. And Jesus had a place to be. He was headed towards the cross. But the crowds would come soon enough. When they found out about his raising of a man from the dead, Boy, the crowds would come. They'd throw him a great parade. All the while, behind the scenes, the religious leaders were plotting his death and the death of the man that he had raised. And soon enough, those crowds would turn as well and cry out, crucify him, having no idea how they were playing into God's perfect plan for his son to die in our place. But for now, Jesus tells his people to keep it quiet. Besides that, they wouldn't understand. This is not a truth that man in his natural state can understand. You cannot understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ apart from the work of God. In Matthew's parallel account, we read these words. As Jesus replies to Peter, he says, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know this. If you have been with us for any portion of the last several months, you know this. That truly believing, that true abiding faith, it cannot be manufactured by man. It must come from God. Do not have it in ourself. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot recognize unless he does this thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. Man in his natural state, man in his lostness, in his brokenness because of his sin, at best he will land where the crowds landed, believing that Jesus was a prophet, perhaps the greatest man that ever lived. And again, maybe you can convince them to utter the words, Jesus is Lord, because they believe that that's their ticket out of hell. But true belief not just intellectual, belief in the heart, faith that stands. Even when that proclamation carries with it great cost, that faith can only come from the work of the Holy Spirit. Does that truth penetrate your heart? It takes root. It's got to come from God. And it can only be found in Christ. Christian, if you only hear me say one thing throughout the last 11 months that we have spent together in this gospel, I pray that it would be this. All that you need All that you need comes from God by the working of the Holy Spirit found in his son, Jesus Christ. How did Peter come to this confession? Jesus made it clear it wasn't by the works of flesh and blood. This wasn't something that man or anything else in creation could bring you to understand. This was the work of God. But how did God accomplish this? How did God work this in his life? We want to get this question right, right? We don't just want to say the right words. We don't just want to memorize the right facts. Deep down in our heart, we want to get this question right. Truly believing, unshakable faith. Faith which leads us to worship in a jail cell after we've been beat with many blows. Allows us to sing with true joy in the midst of suffering. To truly cling to Christ in the middle of the storm. We want to get this question right. Listen to the words of Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What you need, the things that you most desperately need, it isn't just in the preaching of man, but God uses that. The answer isn't in memorizing scripture, but God uses that. The answer isn't in being raised in a Christian household, but God uses that. The answer isn't in belonging to the right church, but God uses that. The answer to all this is the God that made light from nothing. The God who said, let there be light, shining that light into your heart so that you can see his glory. And that glory is found in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. You behold the face of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. You look to the face, the glorious face, the beautiful face of Jesus Christ, and to see his face with eyes that God has given you. To see his face is to delight. It's to cherish. Peter comes to this confession, and all that comes with it, salvation, redemption, the right to be called sons of God. We don't fully understand the fullness of the inheritance that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Not in this lifetime, we won't. And all that comes along with this is because he has seen and cherished the face of Jesus. We try to give the world all these other things. What we need to do is take them to the face of Jesus Christ. Knowing that for many of them, their faces, they won't see. They've been veiled. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. But the answer is still the same. We take them to the picture of Jesus Christ. Here is Christ. See him. Behold. Delight. Many won't. Most won't. But those to whom God has sent his light into your heart, he has opened your eyes, you will see and you'll say, I want that. I want that more than I want anything else. 
That's what it means to reckon with the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. That's the only place that we will find salvation. That's the only place that we will find assurance. That's the only place that we will walk through this life towards an eternity and glory with him. It's all in beholding the face of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that that's what we're doing when we open this word? We're trying to see the face of Jesus Christ. Show me yourself. Show me myself. Because I see my filth and I see your glory. And I see Jesus Christ is the only answer to that. That's the gospel that saves. That's the gospel that endures. That's the gospel that leads men to profess that Jesus is the Christ. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that this, this faith, it's not, I don't know that we can say that it is easy, but it is, the answer is always in the same place. When we wake up each morning, we don't have to figure out what is our pattern for today. Who do we need to seek today that the answer is always turning and looking to Christ. Trusting that all that we need is found there. So, Father, we want to be a people as Christians, those that claim the name of Christ. Father, we want him to be our everything. And we confess that more often than not, he is not. We say it in this place. We feel it in these moments. Perhaps when it feels like the water is rising over our heads, we cry out for it then. But then things get good. We get a few extra bucks in the bank account. Our hobbies, our habits, our own fleshly desires, they call us away. Father, we want Jesus to be everything to us. And we know that the answer is beholding his face. The eyes that you have given us and the hearts that you have called to life. And then, Father, we know that from that place we can rightly worship. We can lift up not just empty words, but we can worship in spirit and in truth knowing that in that you are glorified and we find our ultimate joy. That's our desire, Father. Yes, ultimately we come into this place to glorify you, but we also seek our greatest joy. Would you bring all that to pass now, Father? Stir in our hearts, move us to rightly worship. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Would you stand your feet?